0: Hello there. Um, I hope you can hear me loud and clear all the way uh, in Ireland, where I am. I'm not sure where you are. Remember, if you're uh, listening live or watching live, please do say hi. Tell me where you're uh, living, where you're listening in from. Um, I upload these to SoundCloud and YouTube, so obviously um, a lot of you will be listening to this after the fact. Uh, I'm still in Northern Ireland. I've been here now for a few weeks. Uh, And uh, I was in Amsterdam last week for some talks. And now I'm just preparing for my Wake Festival, uh, which starts in two weeks. Um, And I'm also still working on um, a C.S. Lewis retreat, which is definitely happening. It's going to happen in October of this year. Uh, I've been um, uh, talking with the hotel, which is just down the road from where I'm staying, and uh, it's it's all shaping up very nicely. So I've been reading lots of C.S. Lewis, um, which is interesting because C.S. Lewis, um, you know, he's mostly liked by people who are, you know, standardly very conservative evangelical. Um, they they like him. He's seen as an apologist for a kind of a very kind of simple type of modernist kind of faith or traditional faith, they would say, Uh uh, so there's either people who love him for that reason or hate him for that reason. Uh, what I'm interested in doing is, uh, you know, looking at him um, in a critical way as someone who has been influenced by his work. I mean, I grew up just around the corner from him. He's a Belfast man. He was born and bred in East Belfast. Uh, my friend lived right next door to Little Lee, which is the inspiration for, uh, it's where the wardrobe is for the line the Witch in the Wardrobe. And, um, uh, you know, he went to the church that I went to in my youth. Uh, there's even a stained glass window of, uh, you know, in commemoration of C.S. Lewis. Uh, you know, so he kind of loomed large over East Belfast when I was young. And there was something of his spirit that I loved. the fact that he wrote in various genres. He was never afraid of, you know, talking about any number of issues. He was a really interesting public intellectual. Um, I also loved how he didn't want to be uh, a man of his times. He really was someone who was uh, immersed in the scholastic tradition. And uh, he rarely read books that were, you know, been published in the 20th century. Um, he preferred to kind of be immersed in the 13th century, 12th century, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been working... with with him. Um, And realizing that I I think there's lots of really interesting elements of his thinking, but I want to critically engage with it. So that's what we're going to do. Anyway, one of the very famous things that C.S. Lewis said uh, is he he had an argument when he was younger that Jesus was either uh, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Uh, You know, he was either basically immoral he was crazy, or he was who he said he was. And, uh, you know, it's a very famous argument. Uh, we, interestingly, one of the things about it is that, you know, the word people disagree with C.S. Lewis um, is that they say, well, you know, Lewis is taking for granted that we know what Jesus said. So basically the argument is this. The argument is, uh, you know, Jesus claimed to be God, and uh, so either he's lying He's immoral. He's trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. But, says C.S. Lewis, there's nothing about his life that would lead one to suspect that he was immoral. You know, if you look at someone who's a liar, uh, generally, it's not just in one small area that they lie. You know, they tell a big lie. That immorality is seen in the texture and the tapestry of their life. Uh, But, you know, if anything this figure of Jesus seems to be an incredibly moral individual. And then he says, well, you know, he could be crazy. He could be mentally ill. So he thinks he's God. Uh, there's, there's thousands of people who think that they are God or they were Caesar in a past life or Napoleon or whatever. So Jesus was just someone who had psychotic symptoms. Uh, but then C.S. Lewis says, well, when someone claims to be God, Again, it's not that they are like very rational and wise individuals who just happen to also think they're God. If someone makes those kinds of claims, again it, it, it's seen in their life. You know, they'll also be acting in strange ways in, in, in other areas. But Jesus seems to be an exemplary moral and wise teacher, an exemplary exemplary figure of the wisdom tradition. And so C.S. Lewis says, so therefore, it's, you know, it's not a knockdown case, but he says, well, you know, we can assume that he is who he says he he is, that he claims to be. But of course, you know, someone might come back and go, well, you know, this is just what we read in the text, um, you know, which is written long after Jesus died, et cetera, et cetera. And there's various arguments. But one thing that most people seem to take for granted is Basics of C.S. Lewis's argument that Jesus was a moral teacher and was a wise teacher. But actually, there's a way of reading Jesus, the Jesus of the the narrative that we have, um, as immoral and unwise. That Jesus is a liar and Jesus is a lunatic. And this brings us to Soren Kierkegaard. I mean, Soren Kierkegaard would would uh, be ruling in his grave um, at the idea that Jesus was a moral teacher and a, a wisdom teacher. Uh, these are probably two of the worst things you could say about Jesus from Soren Kierkegaard's perspective. Um, for someone like Kierkegaard, uh, Jesus, first of all, is not moral, at least not through our eyes. Jesus is fundamentally immoral. Uh, Jesus is a figure who is always problematizing our moral frameworks, because what we do as human beings is we create insiders and outsiders, and we demonize outsiders, and we attack individuals, and we take such pleasure in it. We oh, it, you know, you can almost taste the pleasure when you go onto social media, for example, and you see someone taking down an individual. Um, it's, uh, it's it's it's. It's sometimes masked in morality and it's sometimes just, you know, you can see the pure pleasure that people are having. It's not just people. on It's all of us. This is this is what we do. We create um, our inside community who are pure and the outside that is impure. And Jesus is the one who always problematizes these inside outside distinctions we make who is pure and who is impure, who is right and who is wrong, who is good and who is bad. Um, And there's a number of elements to this. One is that in relation to the complete outsider, uh, that Jesus is always saying that whenever um, a complete outsider is being oppressed, um, you know, then the, the, the truth is on their side, not on our side. Now, when you think about an outsider, you've got to think about it, in terms of you know, what Marx meant when he talked about the proletariat, for example. The proletariat was not a class. It wasn't like there's the working class and the middle class and the upper class. The proletariat was the word he used to describe the class of no class. By the class of no class, what he's talking about is though, are those individuals and those communities that have no place within the system. They're not what we see. They're the unseen. It's, you know, today you could probably say, you know, shanty towns, homeless population, prison population, um, uh, people who make our products that that we don't even think about or conceive. Um, They are oppressed by us. and They are our outsider. Um, But also, interestingly, a very key part of the message of Jesus is the scapegoating mechanism, which is the idea that actually the violence we do to other people, uh, the violence that we wrap up as moral and as good and as justified, actually tells us more about our inner state. It tells us more about our um, unresolved, repressed uh, angers and aggressions, bitterness and jealousies. So when we you know, attack um, You know, that often, you know, tells us a lot about ourselves, although, you know, we don't want to look at that. You know, so there is this sense in which Jesus is fundamentally a liar um, in in the sense of fundamentally immoral from our perspective, from the natural perspective. If this figure was walking around and, you know, there are people who manifest this ethics uh, today, they are the ones, in a sense, who judge me. They're the ones who expose my own violence, my own beautiful soul. As Hegel would say, Uh, the beautiful soul describes, uh, you know, a person, an individual who so wants to be pure and right that they can't uh, stand any impurities within themselves and they project those impurities onto somebody else. So they simplify the other. They read bad motives into the other. They read everything in an uncharitable way. Um, and interestingly, Paul, the apostle in the, in the New Testament says, um, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. In other words, our, our, our battle is not against people. Our battle is against ideological structures and systems of systematic oppression. And those are the things that we need to dismantle. And I think that that Pauline idea is actually, I do think it's a, it's a direct reflection on um, Christianity and on Christ. So that's why Kierkegaard would kind of want to say to Lewis, no, 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 Jesus is fundamentally immoral. Now Lewis might want to respond and say, yes, but that's what we mean by morality. But, but actually when you read Lewis, you do get a very, you know, a very English Jesus. <laughs> you, know, you get a very, uh, a very moral and upright individual um, when actually I think that fundamentally there's something that where we're always inherently challenged by this character, by this figure. And, you know, we would, you know, crucify him again in some way, whether it would be on social media or whatever, if, if he was around today. And then secondly, then, why would Soren Kierkegaard want to say that Jesus is uh, not a wisdom teacher, but is actually a lunatic? Well, again, for someone like Kierkegaard, he, he would say, well, Jesus overturns the wisdom tradition and everything we think about how the world works. In fact, the crucifixion itself is the, ultimate, is the ultimate in the opposite of wisdom. The idea of the divine dying is just ridiculous. It's absurd. Um, it's a, it's a, it's where our whole understanding of the universe um, begins to crack and fall apart. But also, in parables, we see this again. We all of our ideas of what is wise are are problematized. Um, in terms of, as I said before, the distinctions between good and bad and right and wrong, but, but also, um, just the very way that we structure and understand the universe, the very idea when Jesus says, I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword, a sword that cuts, you know, mother from, uh, daughter and father from son. This is a, this is crazy because in a sense, the natural way that we build community is with. Our, our tribes, our parents, our children, and then, you know, we widen out from there. But Jesus is talking about rupturing groups from within, not having fights between two different groups, but breaking up groups from within. So, for example, you know, you could find yourself having more in common with a, if you're a Christian with a Buddhist um, than you do with people within your own Christian tradition, because something has has ruptured. From within, um, you know this. This whole teaching, by the way, of the wisdom tradition is generally stoicism. Stoicism is one of the the, the kind of greatest wisdom traditions uh, we know. Um, you know the whole thing about stoicism is everything in balance, everything in moderation. Um, there's also the wisdom tradition that ultimately says, you know, life um, is passing. Uh, you know, so do not get too involved with it. Um, you know. Ultimately, everything is death and nothingness. Um, But Christianity seems to fly in the face of that, or at least Jesus does, where he seems to suggest that we don't live with moderation and balance. We don't weigh things up um, with the evidence, but we throw ourselves unconditionally into the world. We act um, in in an absolute way for the other. We don't think about economics as in what's a reasonable or unreasonable action to make, but we live in gift. We kind of give ourselves wholly to the world. This in itself is kind of like against wisdom, let alone the parables, which are against wisdom in the sense that they problematize our ways of seeing the world, let alone the crucifixion, which kind of is the ultimate in um, stupidity. Uh, Of course, and, and Kierkegaard writes a whole book on Abraham and Isaac, You know, that which is the immoral and unwise thing to do. What moral teacher or what wisdom teacher would say, go up to a mountain and kill your kid? And Soren Kierkegaard wrestles with that um, and what that might mean. So whenever I was kind of reading over this liar, lunatic or lord, um, I was just, you know, drawn to the idea that actually perhaps what makes this figure Jesus so powerful a figure for us today, so powerful a figure um, for so many, is precisely because he does seem like a lunatic and a liar from the natural perspective that we take, that he seems like a challenge to our entire way of seeing the world, our entire way of building inside and outside, pure and impure, right and wrong. Um, That He is a challenge to our self-righteousness, and our abilities to protect ourselves from our own darkness and our own um aggressions. Um, that is a challenge to the way we scapegoat and the way we actually think scapegoating is moral and right and good. And uh, you know, this is something that we see all too often. Uh we've always seen, um, but actually it's it's clearer than ever um, with uh, you know, the access we have to online communication, how we see this. And it's precisely because of this figure who is immoral and unwise, who is this kind of rebel figure problematizing us and challenging us, that actually is what's so interesting, so fascinating, so intoxicating about this figure and why maybe so many of us return um, to, to these teachings and these ideas uh, because of the way that they crack us open. They, they force us, I would say invite us, but sometimes it feels more like being forced to look at yourself, to question oneself and in that to be transformed, um, hopefully becoming more human, more gracious, more loving and more forgiving. Okay, so there's just some thoughts about liar, lunatic, or lord. Um, I'm just going to look, see if anyone's asked any questions, had any comments. Um, Seth says, according to Kierkegaard, Christ as such is beyond morality. That is true, yeah. Uh, This is linked to his idea behind the leap of faith as he parses it out in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Absolutely, Seth. Um, The teleological suspension of the ethical. And uh, maybe we'll talk about that. Uh, on another Facebook Live, but yes, there's a certain sense in which the entire kind of world of ethics, as we understand them, is 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 suspended um, in the religious, in the properly religious act for Kierkegaard. Um, and yeah, David points out. Rene Girard talks a lot about scapegoating too, as does James Allison. Yes, two great thinkers. Um, I heard James Allison speak in Greenbelt a number of years ago, and it was a, a, a wonderful talk. Um, um, yeah, beautifully presented. And René Girard, um, you know, incredibly important thinker, uh, kind of like it's funny how he wrote so brilliantly on theology when, in a sense, he's an anthropologist and a literary uh, thinker, um, but has had such a, a deep influence in theology. So, yeah, um, David, I totally agree. And they're, they're, I think there's real connections with what they're saying and um, <clears throat> you know, what I'm kind of hinting at. Uh, let's see, oh yeah, Harm Jan, who I met uh, last week in Amsterdam. Hi again. Why does C.S. Lewis interest you so much? Okay, I have to be honest with you, right? It's not, it's not because I think that, you know, there's a, you know, it's not that I agree with him, but I do, there's the right, okay, there's two things I really like about C.S. Lewis in his terms of his um, theological reflections. One is his critique of materialism where he says that in in a very articulate way. I love that think he's a very good writer. I think he's a very clear writer. I think he has some beautiful turns of phrase. Um, I think he was genuinely, um, uh, you know, a a public intellectual. Um, And so I admire those aspects of him. I admire that he was such a reader, uh, a voracious reader. And he believed in... The intelligence of his opponents, and he believed in the importance of argumentation, so I love all of that, but in terms of his arguments, one is his critique of materialism as there is something that calls us to something better to another world, right So he talks about it like there's a rumor that one day we might live, and there is a that we are made for another world, that these are the shadowlands. I think there's loads in that. I disagree with him in the sense of he creates a two-world kind of universe. Um, but I similarly and I argue that there is a sense in which there is always a messianic call to transform the world, that it's actually part of being human to feel not at home in the world and to attempt to kind of bring in a, some some kind of you know, utopia into the world. Uh, but I think that that's a never-ending task. That's where I disagree with Lewis. But where I agree with him is his, his openness to saying we should feel that we are in the shadowlands. We should feel not at home in the world. And then I also think there's incredible insight in his argument that literature um, embodies mythology and mythology um, can be embodied in reality. And so... You know, you think about a prophecy. What is a prophecy? Um, in a sense, it's something that's spoken or written. It's, let's call it literature, although it's often not good literature, but literature um, that 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 captures a spirit of an age, of what the people want and desire, right? And then sometimes a, a historical event takes place where that literature and that spirit. Is condensed into a moment in history, and that moment in history articulates um, all of those disparate hopes and desires. An uh, example I've used before but um, is the Titanic. Um, mm-hmm. as, as many of you know, I've mentioned it before, Shizek put me onto it. There was a book that was written about 10 or 15 years before the Titanic sank, and it was a little story, a, a novel about a ship it was about the same size as the Titanic. It was the same style of boat as the Titanic. It had the same basically number of uh, passengers and number of lifeboats as the Titanic, and the same pro- it hit an iceberg like Titanic, in the same ocean as the Titanic, about the same number of people died as in the Titanic. So this is a piece of literature. But this literature, in a sense, caught the spirit of the age. Because those ships, you know, they capture something about class conflict, just like the movie Snowpiercer. If you've seen Snowpiercer, it's a train that talks about class conflict. So that the ship becomes this microcosm of Victorian society. Um, You know, the poor people at the bottom, the rich people at the top. And um, all of those things play out in the romance of, like, traveling across the world. And also, you know, the, the great human achievement of creating such an incredible uh, device. So cr- incredible ship and also human hubris and and, and, and the, the the fact that all of our great projects are smashed, you know, so the sinking in the ice. So all of these ideas are captured in the story. And then something in history happens. And all of that stuff gets connected to it. But of course, because of course, the question is, why does a ship sinking in which, by the way, Titanic was built in Belfast, so just down the road from here. Um, why, why does a ship sink? Why would it capture the imagination of a generation? And why would it continue to capture the of, imagination of millions of people? It's just a ship sinking. I mean, it's a, it's a tragedy, but tragedies happen all the time. What was it? And you could say it was, in a sense, that this historical happening was so pregnant with the spirit and of that literature that captured uh, something of the spirit of the age so that was in the historical reality which gave it such an interesting um an, an important p- place in our cultural imagination and i think this is a very interesting way of understanding again christianity where at a point in history something happened and we don't know exactly what it was but it it seemed like it concretized something of people's hopes and desires and dreams of what liberation, freedom and justice meant. It was concretized in a space and time. And that also then gave birth to, because as soon as it's birthed in history, that also changes the, the story, changes the, the spirit. So, um, you know, that's in a sense what can be seen to, to have happened because, you know, a crucifixion of someone is not a big deal. Lots of people were crucified. Again, a tragedy, but not a tragedy that you'd think would generate um, what what it's generated. So it had to concretize something. That's how you can understand Christ and Jesus. In a sense, Jesus is an historical figure, and Christ as the, the 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 spirit of the age, the spirit of the of the people um, kept in the literature of the prophecies. And then these condense together to create Jesus Christ. Um, And, you know, that's like, I'm not talking about anything uh, necessarily uh, overly spiritual. When I say that, it's just like an event in history um, condensed um, a spirit, uh, just like the Titanic. Anyway, those are two things that I think are useful in in C.S. Lewis. Again, C.S. Lewis would disagree with how I interpret his reading on mythology and history. But um, uh, I I like his kind of ideas. Anyway, sorry, that was too long. Um, Okay, thank you so much for your comments. I was just reading them there. Thanks for saying hi to me. Um, uh, I'm going to be obviously keeping on going with these Facebook Lives. Um, I was a little bit out of uh, sync with them because I was traveling so much. But I'm traveling less this year. Uh, Part of the reason why I'm doing um, Patreon, for example, is so that I can start doing more stuff um, in one location and, uh, you know, offer more things online. And um, so one of those things will be more Facebook lives. And I'm waiting for a camera which will uh, make these much better quality. So thanks for bearing with me. I really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you all again soon. Take care. I say take care and I I can't actually turn the video off there. (laughs) See you.